Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we talk about the strangest case ever argued by Abe Lincoln. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was a lawyer, wasn't he? He was a lawyer. Oh, you always forget that. At least I always forget that, mostly because I know nothing about history. Are you, I know. <laughs> Actually, I think this is going to be a fun one. Uh-huh. I always think that there are pieces of history that are like obvious yeah. that a lot of us just don't know. That's true for all pieces of history for me. Uh, <laughs> I just know a lot of history from watching The Simpsons, which yes. has been really weird growing up because I've been like, Oh, why did I think that happened? (laughs) (laughs) Someone made a really, really good joke about it. It was imprinted in my mind forever. And when I was a child, I completely took it seriously. (laughs) Well, there is something that I take seriously. What? And that is thanking the people that sign up for our Patreon. We have to give a huge thank you to Molly, our newest Patreon member. Thank you so much for signing up. Yes. And thanks again to everyone leaving these great reviews on Apple Podcasts. The more the merrier, baby. Keep them coming, you know? We're, yes. We love you. Thank you. Okay, back to business. The story we're about to tell is a true crime story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kinds of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. And sometimes we get caught up in the moment and swear words do slip out of our pretty little mouths. So please consider yourself warned. <laughs> All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay, let's get started. Okay, Professor Montgomery, here I am, your bright-eyed student, ready to get a history lesson. All right, you weirdo. <laughs> what you got for me? Here we go. Let's do it. So, before he was a famous president, Abraham Lincoln practiced law in Springfield, Illinois, as a prairie lawyer, starting in 1837. Are you going to explain what a prairie lawyer is? I will. Okay, great. So, a prairie lawyer is... It's also called a country lawyer or like a country doctor. It's kind of a a term for people who work in the profession who service like a small community. Okay. Which means, you know, you deal with the types of issues that a small community would deal with. So you're like maybe small claims or property lines Uh or, you know, things of that nature. And they tend to be the type of lawyers that also don't have a specialization So they kind of are a catch-all lawyer. Okay, great. So they're of the people in the rural communities. Right. And this is like kind of what helped uh, earn his reputation as being honest Abe. It's like working in these small communities as this country lawyer. That makes sense. It would be hilarious if it turned out Abe Lincoln was a super crooked lawyer. Yeah, he's, I I mean, maybe he was. I don't know. (laughs) I'm no scientist. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, he did practice law as a prairie lawyer. And remember, too... Um, while we're telling the story. So this is from an essay that he wrote himself. So this is all information from his accounting. Uh And he also lived there and knew everybody. Mm -hmm. So whatever he's talking about, you know, it's from his perspective, but he knows like all the people who live in Springfield. Got it. Right. 
Um, and I know that I don't need to ask this question. What? Not even close. And I know none of our listeners need to ask this question. Abraham but Lincoln uh, was a former U.S. president. Not that. <laughs> <laughs> what year is going on here? Oh, I already said that. You did? <laughs> I'm already failing the test. I know. Um, so he started practicing law in 1837. This story uh-huh. starts in 1841. Okay. Also, just as a little side note. Lincoln was a self-educated lawyer, so he worked as a law clerk, and then in his spare time, he would study, and then he passed the bar in 1836, but like, you could do that back then. You didn't have to go to law school. I don't even know if you went to law school. I think you just studied under lawyers. Oh, that sounds fun, like an apprenticeship program. They're like, (laughs) nowadays, it's like (laughs) $120,000 later. (laughs) It could be $400,000 later now at this point. I actually don't know. It's pretty wild. Okay, Okay, so... Back to the story. Yes. <laughs> so in 1841, there were three brothers living in Illinois, William, Henry, and Archibald Trailer. Archibald lived in Springfield and was known to Lincoln as being this super reasonable, industrious carpenter. All right. Um, he was about 30 years old, and he was a bachelor, so he was unmarried, and he lived in a boarding house with his business partner, who was a dude named Myers. So... I don't know. I think it was just kind of like a bachelor pad roommate situation. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. (laughs) So Henry was a little older and he had a family and a farm in a place called Clary's Grove, about 20 miles north of Springfield. Mm -hmm. And the oldest brother, William, lived about 100 miles north of Springfield. So if you can imagine... Springfield, Clary Grove, yeah, and Warren County, where sure. William lived, they're all in kind of in a straight line north from each other. Okay, so it's like Springfield, twenty miles later, Clary Grove, yeah, and then eighty miles after that is Warren County. Ooh, a little geography lesson, also. Yes, well, I'm just naming off places people live. Um, okay, <laughs> so he was a, a widower. William, the oldest brother, was a widower, mm-hmm. and so he lived on a farm with his kids but no wife. All right. Do you know what happened to his wife? I don't know what happened to his wife. Okay. But I feel like people, you know. Yeah, it's the 1840s. They'll be out there dying. Who knows? You know, yeah, yeah. R.I.P. whoever she was. <laughs> so a guy named Fisher, who was around 50 years old and was a drifter kind of slash handyman guy, was living with William at the time. Uh-huh. So he would basically, he didn't have a family or mm-hmm. a house or anything like that. So what he would do is, he would move in with people and mm. trade like work for money, right? <laughs> and room and board, basically. Okay, right. So he's like a hobo with a bindle, jumps on the trains, goes wherever the wind takes him, shows up, does some work, eats some food, and then just goes on his merry way when it's time for some new scenery. Kind of, yeah. I mean, no, he stayed in this. He lived in this town. He just would like move around in this. Oh, town. so he just was couch surfing from place to place. He was not traveling the country. Right. Okay. People knew Fisher. They like know Fisher mm-hmm. in the in the town and like whatever. They know Fisher in the county. Yeah, I would like to say that I just imprinted my fantasy of living in the 1840s on that man. Okay, uh, great. Just being on the rails and you know traveling the world. Definitely. Okay. Also, rumor has it around town that he had socked away a ton of money by his sort of homeless lifestyle. Oh. Um, So he was known, rumored to have a lot of money saved away somewhere. All right, cool. So one day, William decides he wants to take a trip to visit his brothers, and Fisher came along with him. So Mm -hmm. they get in their horse and buggy, and they drive to Springfield. So they first picked up Henry Uh in Clary's Grove, 
And then they spend the night there and then they land at Archibald's boarding house in Springfield the next day. So it's at least like a two day horse and buggy trip. Yes, definitely. At least a couple days Mm -hmm. in transit. Okay. So they get to Springfield, they get all settled in and the four of them have lunch at the boarding house and then they spend the afternoon walking around the town and looking at stuff because uh-huh. there's no TVs or anything. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> They're like, what's going on in this town? They're just checking it out, All you right. know? Uh, and then they come back for dinner. And when they come back for dinner, the three men walk in, the three brothers, uh-huh. but Fisher's gone. And, you know, there are people living in the boarding house. There are people around. Yeah. And everybody is asking him, where's Fisher? Where's this guy? Yeah. And they say they don't know. They have no idea where he went. So. <laughs> okay. All right. So yeah. the I, four okay. of them are walking around uh-huh. between lunch and dinner and they're like, well, I don't know. He's gone. No clue. No clue. He just disappeared. All right. And everyone's just like, mm, you should have some clue. And they say, no, we don't. We don't know. Okay. So they say, but don't worry. We're going to go looking for him after dinner. They go out. They search after dinner. It's dark. They mm-hmm. go home and. They don't find Fisher. They come home and go to bed. Okay. The next morning, they wake up really early before breakfast, and they search all morning. They have breakfast. They go out again after breakfast. And then after lunch, William and Harry decide they are going home. They don't care. No, they're done looking. They're done looking. Okay. And the other boarders and townspeople who by now kind of know what's going on, mm-hmm. they're just kind of like, well, you can't just leave him here he lives a hundred miles away he doesn't you're his only ride there's no like bus yeah there's not a sick like horse and buggy system i mean it's pretty yeah it's pretty drastic to just leave him there and so people are like you can't just go Uh but henry and william are just over it and they (laughs) they leave so they go home all right so after about four days henry the middle brother who lives in the kind of midpoint city, uh-huh. Clary's Grove. He comes back to Springfield four days later to look for Fisher. Because still no one's heard of him, like heard from him at all. Yeah. And he goes and picks up his brother Archibald at the boarding house. And they kind of look around the whole town looking for Fisher. All right. And they can't find any sign of him again. So Henry goes home. And William at this point is like, I'm done. This guy, I don't care. I'm at my house. Yeah, right. <laughs> About a week later. So at this point, uh, what's that? I don't know, 11 days uh-huh. from the time that Fisher is missing. About yeah. a week later. On Friday, the postmaster general in Springfield gets a letter from the postmaster general in Warren County, where William lives. I'm assuming those are important people. What did a postmaster general used to do? They kind of, from what I'm reading, it's like they manage the mail, right? Uh But back in the day in the rural parts of the U.S., like around this time, there wasn't like a really, you you didn't have like a delivery service most of the time. Mm -hmm. So like you would get your mail from the post office. Uh They didn't deliver. And... They were usually like a general store or something like that. So the person was just a kind of a prominent general store person who would get the get the the title of postmaster general. Okay. Because they're like, if you can run a store, then you're organized enough to deal with the mail. Right. You're you're official enough. Here's some authority. We're calling you the postmaster general. Right. And they would do stuff like they post news, you know, from like national news or news from the area. They do public postings. 
they okay. or like wanted posters or different kind of things like that. All right. They're basically two dudes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Good. With, with good jobs. With, with okay jobs. And right. very important sounding titles. So, right. It's not like the postmaster general. It's like the postmaster general. <laughs> um, the telegram that the postmaster general in Springfield received, yeah. it said that William came home from Springfield bragging about how Fisher died in Springfield and willed all his money to him, uh, which was about $1,500, which was about $50,000 in today's money. Damn, okay, Fisher. Yeah. Very good. A lot of money. Yeah, he's doing he's doing good. I guess those rumors were true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the postmaster from Warren County felt like William was just acting super weird about the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. He... He wanted confirmation about the story from Springfield. Yeah. So, like a buster, the Springfield postmaster just straight up posted the letter publicly. <laughs> oh, damn. He's like, he writes back to him. He says, yeah. no, yeah. that's not what happened. Yeah. He's been missing. They've been looking for him. They said he ran away. Yeah. And then he takes the letter and puts it in the window. Right. It's the old school version of like screenshotting and posting DMs or right, something. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And everyone got super hyped up on the drama. Hell yeah. Because <laughs> there were about 3,500 people who lived in Springfield at the time, which uh-huh. is a small town, right? Like right now. That's what yeah, I'd say. Yeah. It seems small. Right. Tiny. And so I think it's few enough people that there's this great small town drama feeling uh-huh. you know if there's a rumor it can get through 35 people 3500 people really quickly yeah sure but at the time that was kind of a metropolis you know springfield was the seat of illinois at the time mm-hmm. so they had all kinds of city officials and stuff like that like that was a big old town okay i get it and, yeah, and uh-huh. even for reference like chicago mm-hmm. at the time the, the population of chicago was 4470 people oh so it's basically the same size as as springfield yeah comparatively it was a big city at the time oh okay uh, but it's funny to think about because regardless of whether or not relatively it was a big city when you think about a rumor spreading really quickly right you know something like that as soon as he posts something in the in the window everyone's just losing their mind right and all the city officials know and i think it's also worth it based on like what happens next it's worth it to also just remember that if fisher had disappeared in a smaller town Mm -hmm. maybe this case wouldn't have even happened you know what I mean? It's like the rumor mill of a small town meets the resources of a little burgeoning metropolis uh-huh. that like equaled this incredible trial that Abe Lincoln was a lawyer for and it was a big old thing, you know? Right. So it's a particular gumbo pot of all these perfect ingredients that uh, equal this tale. Right. <laughs> gumbo <All> pot. Right. <laughs> That's a good metaphor. Um, so... The attorney general of the state of Illinois, who like lives in Springfield, Mm -hmm. (laughs) grabs the mayor of Springfield and they start a manhunt for Fisher's body. Oh, damn. Immediately, like the same day. That's crazy. You think about a mayor get being personally involved in a manhunt? That's what I'm saying. It's like it's a teeny town, but it feels big. And then you have... You know, the attorney general and the mayor of Springfield. And they're like, come on, guys, we're going to find this body. (laughs) It's also like 3,500 people. I don't know. I think it's great. So the ensuing search Uh was super dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) 
They searched everywhere. They searched cellars and wells, and they searched all these different pits they knew about in Springfield. And then they went around and they yeah. dug up all the fresh graves in the cemetery to see if his body was in one of the graves. And they also went and dug up all the newer graves of all the dead horses and dogs. Which oh my is, God. When you think about it, that's pretty drastic. Well, <laughs> like, right now, so. The series of events is this guy shows up missing, then someone starts bragging about him dying, right? Yeah. But he's not bragging about killing him or anything like that. Just like, oh, he passed away, he's gone. And then this town loses their mind and digs up all of the graves? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's slightly different. It's Mm -hmm. that the postmaster writes a letter to the other postmaster saying, hey, some dude in our town is acting crazy. Is his story true? And then before consulting <laughs> with anyone, the Springfield postmaster is like, man, that story is not true. And I know it's not true because we look for Fisher. Yeah. And then he just puts it in the window. Yeah. So all the people who had been looking for Fisher see this thing and they're like, that's ridiculous. That story's not true. And then the mayor gets involved. <laughs> it, seems like, <laughs> it seems like everyone was just waiting for a reason to grab their shovels and start digging up graves. Of course they were. Yeah. If they're like, oh, I'm going to drive 100 miles to go have lunch with my brother and then walk around and look at stuff in a town. They're all looking for something to do. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. They're like, yeah, I was going to check the pits anyways, yeah. you know? Oh, oh, the cellar? Yeah, I'd go down there once a week anyways. Let's see if there's a dead body. <laughs> so this is all the first day also, right? So <laughs> yeah. as epic as the search was, yeah. Springfield's still a tiny-ass town. So the search began on Friday when the letter arrived yeah. and ended the next day on Saturday. <laughs> like it only took yeah. them a little while to dig up all the graves and they're like, well, I don't have any more ideas. Like, well, did we get all the uh, fresh horse graves? They're like, yeah, there was two. We did it. We're done. <laughs> He's not here. So they didn't find him. No, they didn't find him. All right. So they send officers to go arrest Henry and William in their respective towns mm-hmm. on Sunday morning. So while everyone's waiting for the officers to bring back the brothers, the investigation continues and they start taking people's accounts, like witness accounts. Mm-hmm. So people around town were claiming that they saw the brothers use gold pieces to pay for things that they believed belonged to Fisher, which I'm kind of like, how would you know that? How'd you know? Yeah, they thought, oh, that gold is definitely Fisher's gold. They don't know Fisher or the brothers. You know what I mean? Right. They live in other towns. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> These nosy ass people. <laughs> they did not seem like the kind of people that would have gold. They must have killed a man for that gold. So on Monday morning, one of the officers arrives with Henry, the brother who lives a little closer uh-huh. to Springfield. And they interrogated Henry for two days. Mm-hmm. And on Wednesday, he admitted that William and Archibald murdered Fisher without Henry's knowledge. Uh-huh. But then the next day, they forced him to help them move the body and keep a lookout while they buried it in a swamp before they all headed back home the next day. Oh. So. Basically, they killed him the day he went missing and then reburied the body in a like a pond nearby oh. on the second day before heading home. Right. So they're like, we're just going to go look for him again in the, the morning, like before breakfast or whatever. And they're like, OK. And then they came back. But really, they were moving the body. Exactly. OK. Now, up to this point, Archibald. Yeah. The brother who lived in the boarding house 
he had a great reputation in Springfield yeah. and he wasn't even suspected in the crime. Right. <laughs> so these guys, yeah. the entire time, like Archibald was there when Fisher disappeared, but because of his good reputation, they didn't even ask him what was up. They just were like, man, this is crazy. <laughs> I guess we're going to arrest your brothers. Yeah, but you're fine. Right. They like drove out of town to go pick up Henry and <laughs> William. Yeah. But Archibald was fine. So then they're like, oops, Henry had his confession, so they go and arrest Archibald. God, I guess brothers just snitching on brothers right away. So Henry had this super detailed account of what happened. Uh-huh. So he says he wasn't there, but Archibald and William killed Fisher in the woods. They took the horse and buggy out to the woods and killed Fisher in the struggle in the woods. Brutal. Then the next day when they brought Henry back, to the scene of the crime, they forced Henry to stand lookout while they drove the buggy back into the woods through this thicket, picked up the body, and then drove the body over to a pond that mm-hmm. was helping like a mill turn called a Miller's Pond or something like that. All right. Uh, so it's this guy's pond, right? Okay. And then they backed the buggy in and threw the body in the swamp or the pond. And sure. then they all sort of got in the buggy and got their horses and then went home. Mm -hmm. And when a search party searched that area, they found buggy tracks following the exact path that Henry described in the thicket, along with signs of his struggle in the middle of the thicket. Then they found buggy tracks backing up to the pond and then taking off north toward William and Henry's respective hometowns. Okay, so the story checks out. Yeah, and the physical evidence is all there. I mean, uh-huh. it's been over a week, but I guess they went there and they could see all of the physical evidence and the tracks and everything. All right. Exactly how Henry said it. So the mayor enlists hundreds of men to rake the pond for Fisher's body. <laughs> I like thinking that it's not even a big pond. No, it's not. It's not that big. It's <laughs> yeah. not that big, but they're raking it right by hand. And yeah. by Thursday, they had drained the entire pond. Damn. But there's still no sign of the body so on friday the next day the officers returned from warren county with william in custody so it took them i don't know a week five days to make that drive it was a long time <laughs> okay. i think they were kicking it yeah just having fun on their horse and buggy adventure <laughs> yeah so they return with william in custody as well as this guy he's not arrested uh-huh. he just is coming to talk to the people in Springfield. Uh, and he, he calls himself Dr. Gilmore. Okay. <laughs> and just, I don't know, I think as an aside, uh-huh. it took about 16 weeks to get through medical school back in the 1800s. That does not sound like enough. <laughs> That's all they knew back then. They're like, 16 weeks covers the basics. Not that much. It, it was definitely, there were no entrance exams or anything like uh-huh. that. So it was pretty easy to add you know, doctor to your name and call yourself something, you know, doctor something, something. Right. It sounds like all the schools back then were all ITT techs or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So apparently after the officers had arrested William and they were heading back the hundred miles to Springfield, Mm -hmm. they stopped for the night in this little town called Lewiston. And really late that night, Dr. Gilmore arrived at the inn. So he's out of breath. He's been traveling, trying to catch up to them. And he's claiming that Fisher was alive and hanging out at his house. And he had followed the officers just to relay that info (laughs) so they could just release William. (laughs) However, for some reason, Dr. Gilmore did not 
bring Fisher with him. Right. So he <laughs> just wanted to let people know like what was up, you know? Okay, okay. And the officer was obviously skeptical of this random doctor. Yeah. Uh, so he decided to take William to Springfield anyway with the doctor in tow. So the doctor can go tell the mayor or whoever what he wants to say. Right. <laughs> but he's like, I'm not going to deal with you. I'm not going to like tell them to let William. I'm not going to give you back William. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, when Gilmore, I'm sorry, when Dr. Gilmore arrives in Springfield, <laughs> yeah. you know, he goes up to the authorities and he tells them the same story. Fisher's at my house. He's alive, but he didn't feel like coming to Springfield. <laughs> right. So I'm just here to take William back. Yeah. Just a big misunderstanding. Right. And Henry hears this, right? Henry, the brother, yeah. hears that Fisher's alive at Dr. Gilmore's house. Yeah. And he says, no, he adamantly reaffirmed his own story about the, his brother's killing Fisher. He yeah. says, there's no way I saw the body. I know they killed Fisher. Right. And at this point, nobody knows what to think. Mm -hmm. So eventually the town decides that obviously Dr. Gilmore was a friend of William just trying to get the brothers off. Yeah, pretty right? clearly, right? Yeah. So what while all this worked? is going on, yeah. this dude Myers that Archibald lived with, mm -hmm. you know, the guy who lived at the boarding house, yeah. he's over it. And he decides he's going to sort it all out once and for all. And so he takes off to drive the 100 miles back to Warren County to see if Fisher is actually at Dr. Gilmore's house. <laughs> okay. And then if he was, he's yeah. like, I'm bringing him back to Springfield. So yeah. Myers takes off. And the trial is about to start. Okay. So Henry takes the stand at the trial. And again, he testifies about how his brothers murdered Fisher for his money. And the prosecution brings in tons of witnesses mm -hmm. to testify that they saw the brothers take Fisher into the thicket in question and return without Fisher. And then they say the next day, other people saw the brothers drive the buggy to Hickox's mill pond, the pond, uh -huh. just like Henry testified. And okay. then you also have all the physical evidence and the mm -hmm. thicket and a bunch of people testified about how the brothers were passing this unusual amount of gold pieces after Fisher disappeared. So everybody is saying like, I saw this, I saw the whole thing, which but they're waiting until now. Weren't they the same people also just digging up graves and looking for stuff? I know. There was something kind of fishy about this, but you get that feeling, that uh -huh. small town buzz. You know what I mean? Like people are like, oh yeah, I saw, I saw that guy. You know what I mean? Like they're, in, they're but just, they're swearing on Bibles in courtrooms. They don't care. <laughs> I don't even think there's a police officer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, right. They're like, I don't know. This guy, Abe Lincoln is the lawyer. He's a prairie lawyer, whatever that means. I mean, they're all just pumped. You know, the yeah. whole town is trying uh -huh. to pack into this courthouse to see what's going on. Nothing goes on in this city, you know, or in, the, in this town. And, yeah. and so people are saying, you know, I saw him. Oh, man, he had 50 pieces of gold. <laughs> then he bought a chicken. Then he killed the chicken. <laughs> then he ate the chicken. <laughs> I was there for every minute. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty great. <laughs> yeah, that's intense. Wait, I have a question. Yeah. So Lincoln is one of the lawyers at this point. He's the defense lawyer. 
defense lawyer. So he's working on behalf of the Trailer Brothers. So now all of these townspeople are coming up and saying, I saw the, his client murder this man. Exactly. And then move the body and spend his money. Exactly. All so right. that's the prosecution. They're the ones, you know, prosecution, yeah. prosecuting the trailers. Okay. Um, so Abe Lincoln kind of tells this story. He's very modest. He doesn't really talk about his role in it at all. He just talks about the story because he just thinks it's great. Uh-huh. Um, so the prosecution rests and the defense begins their case and they call Dr. Gilmore to the stand. All right. And Dr. Gilmore starts to talk and he says, you know, I, I live about seven miles away from William and I actually heard of William being charged with Fisher's murder. And so I knew about that in the ether. And mm-hmm. one day after returning home, he says he found Fisher in super poor health, really, really sick, hanging out on his porch, on Dr. Gilmore's porch. Uh-huh. And Fisher is unable to account for his absence or how he got 100 miles from Springfield back home. Oh, so he remembers going to Springfield. He doesn't remember how he got back. And he's really sick, right? This is according to Dr. Gilmore. All right. He's looking at this guy and he's thinking, well, I got to say something because I know that the officers just arrested William. Yeah. So he jumps on his horse and he like tears after the officers and he gets there and he's like, no, Fisher's alive in my house. And they're like, you're crazy, dude. Get out of here. Yeah. He's like, no, I'm being a really chill bro right now. (laughs) And he says he didn't bring Fisher because he seems so sick. And he says, Dr. Gilmore says he's known Fisher for years because they all live in Warren County, you know, around Mm -hmm. each other. And he says, I've known Fisher for years. And he knows that he occasionally has these like bouts of derangement because Mm -hmm. he had a head injury as a child. So occasionally Fisher will have these like spells where he's kind of a big old weirdo. (laughs) Okay, great. And he knows that to be true. So he says, that's probably what happened, but Mm -hmm. Fisher's at my house. All right. And everyone at the trial thought that Dr. Gilmore sounded so truthful that they decided to just release the trailer boys in spite of all the evidence and Henry's confession. So... The entire town testifies to witnessing murder and moving of a dead body. Yeah. And then one guy is just, I guess, not histrionic. And they're like, well, he's from that other town. So he's he's not caught up in the drama. And he's a doctor. What is going on with actual Fisher? If he's alive, they could have gotten him by now, right? Well, and everybody knew that. Myers was going down to check it out anyway. So they just got on with the trial real quick. Yeah. They're like, he might not be back. So people disappear at these neck of the woods. Yeah. So they released the trailers. And then a couple days later, Myers, Myers comes back with Fisher. Oh, so feel good was what I just call him. Dr. Feel good. What's his name? (laughs) Gilmore. Because he sounds like a, like a witch doctor or like, you know, one of those fakes sort of like, Dr. Dr. Gilmore was telling the truth. Yeah. Myers came back and he's like, why did I drive 200 miles round trip to get this guy? We're just going to let him off the hook. But he did. He drove all the way down to Warren County, picked up Fisher and drove him back. And he was totally alive. My eyebrows are 
shoved together so tightly, I assume some of our podcast listeners can hear them scrunching. <laughs> so what what is going on with everyone saying they saw a murder and the brother saying, my brothers killed someone? Well, I mean, I think they were just hyped. They said the case was closed, despite the fact that there was no explanation for the fact that Henry's testimony matched all the physical evidence that they found. And it matched the witness testimony. And Henry never recanted his story. He stood by his story this entire time. And also, yeah. no one ever found out what the hell happened to Fisher. He doesn't remember. And nobody knows. What is going on? I don't know. William died a year later. And then Archibald died a year after that. And at the time that Lincoln wrote this essay, Henry yeah. was still alive, but he never spoke to anyone about the trial ever again. He never said a word about it, and he never recanted. Weird. He's like, yeah, that whole time when I made up the story of my brothers killing that guy. Never said anything. Never, And both of his brothers died. Damn. <laughs> and then after the trial, William Trailer stiffed Lincoln on his attorney's fees, so Lincoln <laughs> had to sue him. <laughs> And he won. <laughs> He's like, you didn't do any work for me. You call yourself Honest Abe. What did you really do for me? You just put the doctor on the stand. <laughs> yeah, and then Fisher waltzed in the door, and I got <laughs> off. I Afterwards, Lincoln wrote a letter to his friend about the aftermath of the trial. Uh -huh. And I want to read you uh, like a section of it because I just think it's really funny. Okay. And I think it perfectly sums up sort of the energy of the town and maybe why this had happened. Sure. Thus stands this curious affair. When the doctor's story was first made public, it was amusing to scan and contemplate the countenances and hear the remarks of those who had been actively in search for the dead body. Some looked quizzical, some melancholy, some furiously angry. <laughs> Porter, because remember, he knows all these people. Yeah. Porter, who had been very active, swore he always knew the man was not dead and that he had not stirred an inch to hunt for him. <laughs> Langford, who had taken the lead in cutting down Hickox's mill dam and wanted to hang Hickox for objecting, looked most awfully woebegone. He seemed the victim of unrequited affection. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait a minute. So you mean when they were like searching through the pond? They were like, well, in order to search this pond, we have to ruin your mill. Yeah. And then the mill worker was like, don't ruin my mill. And, then and this, this guy's guy like, oh, we should hang him, guys. <laughs> like, I mean, that's how that's how like high pitched fever pitch this thing was. He's right. Like, we got to hang him. You know, and then now he's like super sad. Right. Everyone wants a dead body. Yeah. And then he says a man named Hart, who was like a beer delivery guy for the brewery, mm -hmm. said uh, he was super upset. And he said it was too damn bad to have so much trouble and no hanging after all. <laughs> so they were just looking for a public execution. <laughs> Like, and you hear this, like, yeah. story. I mean, Abe Lincoln, he's in this town, and he was there for years, you right. know, working in this community in Springfield, and he knows all the people in the courtroom and just watching, you know, I mean, in a week, they dug up all the fresh graves of animals and humans <laughs> and drained this pond, and they were doing all this crazy stuff, and then they had this trial, and then... 
this one guy just testified really, really good, and then they let the brothers go. I love how the one guy, too, he was super active in the manhunt. Yeah. And then afterwards, when Fisher shows up, he's like, oh, I knew he wasn't dead. Exactly. I didn't even look. You guys were all freaking out. I was just laughing at you guys digging up the wells and searching in all the cellars not me i was sitting back with the lemonade like you know it was just this perfect holding up the mirror you know to the true self of this town right and like just this idea that everyone is in the middle of illinois just bored out of their minds you know well it's weird too the the this phenomenon of people being convinced that they witnessed it right so like some of them probably just heard the story and they don't have television or mind-blowing podcasts or any other f- fun entertainment. They just have literal stories and rumors. And then it just like goes into their mind and then they can imagine seeing it. And then the next morning they wake up and suddenly it's a memory for them. Yeah. I mean, it's so wild. And it's like, I don't know. Part of me thinks maybe the trailer brothers tried to kill Fisher. Yeah. And then Fisher kind of escaped. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like to me they beat him and they thought they killed him and then he woke and then he was just unconscious and woke up. Right. But the thing is, is then he still had to make it a hundred miles back to his house in a very little amount of time. Yeah. Well, actually about 11 days. So maybe he could have done it. Walk 10 miles a day. I mean, someone could have given a ride or just something. Yeah, so maybe he just got freaked out and then he said, okay, well, I'm just not going to tell anybody what happened. You know, so that definitely could have happened. I so, mean, for him to uh, travel 100 miles, you know, on his own, anyone would get to their destination after not eating and maybe not having any money yeah, or anything. You might remember one little detail. Yeah, but maybe you'd be pretty tired and not <laughs> want to go on another stupid horseback trip. He's like, I'm not going back to Springfield. Yeah, you tell him I'm You alive. tell him I'm not going. <laughs> Do you know if there was any truth to the thing that the postmaster general said about the brother bragging that this guy died and left him all the money. It sounds like he did do it. I mean, I think unless the postmaster general had it out for William, it seems to, I mean, I don't know. It seems to me like that was probably a, a, that was probably true. Yeah. I mean, and, and what the postmaster general said was that he had told a bunch of people, uh-huh. like he was out there like really being like, oh, I killed Fisher. I'm going to get his money. Da, 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 yeah. da, da. He's dead in Springfield. Like he said it a bunch. Yeah. So they must have just beat his ass in that thicket, which I love thinking about a crime in a thicket. Uh, <laughs> I don't love thinking about crimes or violence. Muriel, don't try to trick me into becoming a fan of your dirty, dirty two crime tales. But that is a pretty, uh, there's something very evocative about a beating in a thicket. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, also, if I'm following you correctly, most of this research came from an essay Abe Lincoln wrote. Yeah. So he was kind of like a little true crime writer. He was. A lot of people were um, back in the day. Like I think Benjamin Franklin wrote some and like Abe Lincoln. Yeah. People like to just report on crimes. But I, I, it makes sense to me. I mean, trials were like the hot shit back then. Executions. You know, yeah, people would right. be out there being like, woof, honey, get dressed. We got to get out there to see that guy get <laughs> Yeah, hanged. totally. You know? Yeah, yeah, right. And he's like, well, I have to build a reputation somehow. I'm thinking, I'm thinking from like Abe Lincoln's point of view, right? So he's like, I need 
people to know about my cases and what I've done and my work history. I don't know. I think it's just like way too ridiculous of a case. It's not like he did anything. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, what is he bragging about? Like he, he didn't even do anything. He called one witness at the, as a defense and they just liked the witness. So they let the guys go. I mean, he didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't see that as being very honest. Mr. Abe. No, I think he just thought it was like, the weirdest thing. He was yeah. just like, not only is the story so weird, yeah, it just really shines a light on how people were acting. I mean, yeah. they tore apart their town <laughs> looking for a body and then they were hella sad and disappointed at the trial. I just think that's so funny. He's just like, these fools out here are tripping. <laughs> Was there any like editorializing in Abe Lincoln's no, essay about this? No, he doesn't need it because this is just a straightforward story. The right. facts are the facts. <laughs> right. And the facts are just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just great. It's just this really funny thing to me. What about the deaths of the brothers so shortly after the trial? I think it was all just natural. Uh-huh. They died. You don't think Fisher came back for him? No, I I think you want this to be bigger than it is because you love true crime. <laughs> Ariel, you trickster. So all the info for this story is pulled from an essay Lincoln wrote called The Remarkable Case of Arrest for Murder. Wow. Hear that, people? You're getting it direct from Abe Lincoln. That is our number one source. Is he like a good writer? I assume it was well. Like people a fun say read. the intro, I, I got this essay in a book of essays, uh-huh. and the intro to the essay talks a lot about how Lincoln is this really articulate, beautiful crime writer. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I think he was just spilling the tea. I don't uh-huh. think you know, <laughs> yeah. it was fine. It was very, it was just funny because it was a, it's a very like straightforward accounting of what happened. Yeah. It's definitely not like editorialized in any way. Right, it's not Truman Capote quite yet. No, no, no. It's like, then this happened and then this <laughs> happened and on this date, this happened. And they're like, wow, that guy has a crazy sense of humor. <laughs> God, is he Shakespeare? Let's make him president. I mean, the the letter he wrote to his friend, I think is pretty funny. Yeah. But he was throwing some pretty good shade. Yeah, but it's very dry. It's like uh-huh. the driest shade possible, you know? So yeah, right. you can kind of hear little bits of humor, you know, where people are like, oh man, this guy, you should be a stand up. He's so funny. <laughs> it's like, you can hear little pieces of that, but it's just like, it's kind of like, um, I don't know. It's just like a very dry, dorky retelling of what happened. <laughs> yeah, right. Great. Uh, unlike this incredible retelling by you, Muriel. Oh. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciated my history lesson. And if um, uh, you test me, give me an A no matter what. Okay, honey. Okay, great. I'll test you every day of your life. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. As always, Muriel did all the research and I did the sound engineering and the post-production. That's right. So thanks for nothing, universe. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Uh, I also draw and animate little bonus cartoons and some of those Muriel and I actually collaborate on real closely mm-hmm. and that is what populates our social media feed. So please find us at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. That's right. Actually, these cartoons are pretty whack in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> wacky. Wacky. They're really great. They're pretty wild. Some of them are outrageous. Some of them are, I don't know, we troll ourselves. Yeah, They're we're, great. We're proud of them. Please find us on social media. And as always, our DMs are open and you can email us at murders at gmail.com. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. I swear to God, it really does help us grow. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel, please check out our non-murder podcast, Hella in Your 30s, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next Wednesday. Oh, hello, you. What's up, hoes? I'm Mary Kay McBrayer. I'm Mary Amelia Byer. I'm Rachel Estridge. And we like scary movies. Let's be more specific. We like analyzing scary movies. Okay, but let's be a little bit more specific. We like making fun of scary movies. Let's be even more specific. We have to make fun of scary movies so that we can sleep at night. We host a horror comedy podcast called Everything Trying to Kill You that rips all your fave horror movies a new one. And bonus, we'll tell you jokes from the perspectives of... Feminist ethnic minorities. And queer women. Which might be something you haven't considered before. Sure looks like Hollywood hasn't. So check out Everything Trying to Kill You. New episodes every other Friday on Campfire Media. Campfire.